0: Spirit Flood, Rebirth of Spirit Baptism for the 21st Century In Light of the Azusa Street Revival and the Life of Carrie Judd Montgomery by Jennifer A. Miskov Narrated by Jennifer A. Miskov For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, Isaiah 35, 6. John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 11.16. Part 1. Introductions. Seeds. Since being in England and studying revivals, the theme of spirit baptism has emerged in my studies as I have looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in the early 1900s. This has led to my personal reflection on the subject. I was fascinated with this somewhat new theme for me, which was central to the early global Pentecostal revivals of the 1900s. I had already had a deep experience with the Spirit over 15 years ago, where I also spoke in tongues, but this whole language of being baptized and flooded in the Spirit was a new concept for me. I became fascinated with Spirit baptism and how it played a crucial role in a great revival. I started pressing into finding out more about it through my academic studies and my devotional times. After attending a church service at a different church while here in England, in the midst of my hunger for more of the Spirit, the speaker talked about Spirit baptism. I was rocked by the Spirit that night and wanted more. I got home and was still on cloud nine after a sweet experience with the Spirit when I looked at my phone before I went to bed. It was exactly 11.16 p.m. I thought it quite interesting that it was also November 16, 2007 which was displayed on my phone as 1116. With two 1116s at the same time, I thought that God wanted to show me something. So I decided to play a little game with God. I thought that I would turn to a book in the Bible and look up an 1116 verse, and maybe he would speak to me. I didn't wanna to have to look from book to book because then I thought I would be manipulating things. So I thought for a moment about which book to pick. Because I had been learning all about the Holy Spirit, I decided to look at Acts which I was also going through at the time in my life. When I turned to Acts 11.16 in honor of 11.16 p.m. on 11.16, 2007, I was in awe. I literally remember freaking out and saying, shut up, God, no way, shut up, this is crazy. That was my slang way of saying, God, you're crazy, this is crazy. In the midst of my journey to England, where this newer theme of spirit baptism was becoming a big part of my studies, where there was a growing hunger in my own heart for more of the Holy Spirit, and right after a talk about spirit baptism, I read that night in Acts eleven sixteen, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I absolutely love it when God is so incredibly real and present in our lives. Throughout the few years following that account, the theme of being flooded by the Spirit has continued to grip me. The upcoming essay is an adaptation of an academic paper I gave at the Society for Pentecostal Studies in March 2010 in Minnesota. One of the main characters mentioned will be Carrie Judd Montgomery, whom I introduce first with a brief sketch so that you will have some context. And as we dive in, I honestly feel... Like I've just touched the tip of the iceberg in relation to the theme of spirit baptism, which I'm still attempting to process myself. And while I admit that I'm still wrestling with these things at the same time, and without a doubt, I strongly feel there's something powerful when our hearts cry changes from Lord fill me to Lord baptize me afresh with your spirit. And this I pray that the spirit may do just that in our lives today. And I pray that as you listen to this recording, wherever you are, that it would not just be a nice little book, but it actually would be uh, an encounter with the living God, and that you would be marked with a fresh fire and a fresh move of the Spirit in your own life, that you would be overwhelmed and overshadowed and flooded with more of the Spirit, that it doesn't matter where you are, that God would mark you in a very special and significant way as you go on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me next introduce you to a friend whom I have never personally met, but whom I have grown to deeply value in my life. May her story enrich your life and increase your hunger for more of the spirit. Carrie Judd Montgomery, 1858-1946. Growing up. During the same year and in the same state as the revival of 1857-58, Carrie Francis Judd entered into the world. Being the fourth of eight children, Carrie was born on April 8, 1858, and spent her early days in Buffalo, New York. During her childhood years, she had already faced the reality of both suffering and healing. She lost two of her sisters to severe illnesses and also saw her brother and father healed. Because of her own health, at 15 years old, her brother invited her to live with him in another area of New York, which had a better climate. During her time there, she worked for an editor of a health magazine, which would prove to foreshadow her later writing ministry. After a return home to help care for several sick in her family, she moved to another part of New York with the same brother. During her year's stay, she started a Sunday school with the neighborhood children. When she returned home, she was healthy enough to continue with her own schooling. The Fall One cold winter day in 1876, as Carrie was walking to school, she slipped and fell hard on the icy ground. She continued to school that day, but shortly after, her health began to rapidly deteriorate. Soon after the incident, on January 6, 1877, Carrie found out that she had spinal fever. What seemed to be tuberculosis of the spine developed into tuberculosis of the blood, which forced Carrie to give up school and her aspirations of becoming a school teacher. Being prostrated with spinal complaint, the trouble extended to all the large joints. Her hips, her knees, and ankles could not be touched, even by herself, without great suffering. For over 11 months, she could not sit up on her own. She could not even handle light or much time with people. She recalled that a small pillow under her head felt like a block of stone. Her days in bed grew into months and then years, at a time when those around her were expecting her death at any moment and even her mother allowed friends into her room to say their last goodbyes. Her father came across a unique article in the local newspaper. The article told of the account of Mrs. Edward Mix, an African-American woman from Connecticut who was healed of tuberculosis through the prayers of Mr. Ethan Allen. Upon hearing this, Carrie asked her sister Eva to send Mrs. Mix a letter requesting healing prayer from her. To their surprise, the Judd family received a quick response from Mrs. Mix. The prayer found in James 5.15 was central to the letter as well as an encouragement to act in faith regardless of how she felt. Also mentioned in the letter was a specific time where both sides would pray simultaneously for Carrie's healing. Even though no one showed up to Mrs. Mix's regular prayer meeting that day due to poor weather, she and her husband prayed for Carrie nonetheless. During their set-apart time of prayer on February 26, 1879, Carrie engaged in a spiritual battle. Finally, she felt it was time to act in faith and get up out of her bed. She walked over to the nearby chair, which she hadn't been able to do for some time before. Her skin color gradually changed from yellow back to pink, and it was evident that her healing process was ignited from that day forward. By April of that same year, she was well enough to use the stairs and go outside to visit the neighbors. In the years that followed, she continued to correspond with Mrs. Mix. At one point, Mrs. Mix even came to visit, and they went out into the city to pray for healing of those who were sick. Healing Homes News of Carrie's healing spread, and she soon became the talk of the town. People heard her story in newspapers and wrote letters to her asking if she was really healed. Many people came to hear her story and to receive prayer. Her compassion was stirred, and in the summer of 1880, she opened up a room in her parents' home to receive such people. Soon after, she decided to open up a healing home in Buffalo, New York, in April of 1882. This was one of the first healing homes in New York and was used as a model for many future healing homes in the country. Writer Carrie was also a prolific writer. Based on the prayer found in James 5 and her own healing experience, she wrote The Prayer of Faith in 1880 to encourage others to embrace and take hold of their healing. This book was significant because it was among some of the first prominent books written on the subject of divine healing in her time. In 1881, Carrie also initiated a magazine called Triumphs of Faith, which emphasized holiness and divine healing themes. She continued to write and edit this journal for over 60 years. Preacher Carrie became an itinerant preacher and teacher and traveled nationally and even internationally throughout her life to share her story of healing and to encourage people in their faith. Her zeal to spread the somewhat unpopular message of divine healing at that time put her in the category of a radical evangelical. Through her close friendship with A.B. Simpson, she eventually became a part of the forming of the Christian Missionary Alliance, or the CMA. Simpson continually encouraged and created space for her to step out and to share her story. Growing up in the Episcopalian Church, Carrie transcended denominational barriers when she shared her story at Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Salvation Army, and Christian Missionary Alliance and other gatherings. She also organized Casadero camp meetings throughout the years, which impacted many leaders from all different backgrounds. Not too long after the Civil War and in a time before Martin Luther King Jr. came to the scene, she also preached to African Americans. In 1889, Carrie experienced some persecution and even some churches shutting their doors to her, first because she was a woman preacher, and second because she spoke to African Americans. But regardless of these things, Carrie continued to share what God had done in her life with those who would listen. Wedding Bells in California In 1890, Carrie married a successful businessman named George S. Montgomery. Who was previously healed of diabetes and afterward had consecrated himself to the lord's service he brought her from buffalo new york to oakland california and with her husband's support she opened up an orphanage and a training center in addition to her healing home the montgomery's built the home of peace which is still there to this day this was the first healing home on the west coast even before john g lakes through Carrie's move to California, she was one of the early advocates of divining healing on the west side of the nation. In several histories of the divine healing movement, Carrie's the only woman listed among other key shapers in the movement, like Charles Cullis, A.B. Simpson, A.J. Gordon, William E. Boardman, Andrew Murray, and other men. She and her husband also became honorary officers in the Salvation Army before the turn of the century. The Pentecostal Stamp When the birth of American Pentecostalism arose through the Azusa Street Revival in California in 1906, Carrie, although hesitant at first, eventually received her spirit baptism experience in 1908. Even at the age of 50, and having already been a successful minister, she was still open to all that the spirit had to offer. She claimed that this experience deepened her spirituality. As a result of this, the theme of spirit baptism became integrated into her magazine and her teaching. Because of her great reputation, she was used as a bridge between evangelicals and Pentecostals. To the evangelicals, she was a prominent voice to introduce spirit baptism without all the fanaticism many times attached to it. And to the Pentecostals, she remained balanced in her views and didn't overemphasize the gift of tongues. While not cutting her ties with the other organizations she was a part of, by 1914, Carrie joined the newly forming Assemblies of God. Throughout her life, Carrie was personal friends with Charles Cullis, A.B. Simpson, William Booth, Minnie Abrams, Pandita Ramabai, Elizabeth Baxter, Maria Woodworth-Edder, Alexander Boddy, William J. Seymour, and was connected to Smith Wigglesworth, Amy Simple McPherson, John G. Lake, and many other prominent Christian leaders in her time. She continued her ministry until her death on July 26, 1946, and was succeeded by her only child, Faith Barry inspiration. Carrie continually gave away whatever she received from the Lord. After her own healing, she taught others about healing and prayed for them to be made well. She later lived through the Pentecostal revival of the early 1900s and was open to all that the spirit wanted to do, while remaining balanced in the midst of some fanaticism. After her spirit baptism experience, she encouraged others towards the same fullness. Whenever she experienced something from God, she eagerly sought to help others receive the same. Regardless of already being successful in ministry, Carrie never wanted to miss all that the Spirit had for her. The way in which she approached revivals and newer moves of God with an open heart to receive all that God had for her serves to encourage people today to do the same. Carrie remained faithful to her husband and to the Lord all the days of her life. She lived a full life with total surrender to the Holy Spirit, unity and love, healing, fullness of the Holy Spirit, and faith as prominent themes throughout. While Carrie made mistakes in her life like all people do, she serves as an inspiration, not only for young people and for women to step out in faith against all odds, but for all people to live lives fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit, to be unified in love above all controversies, and to freely give away what has been freely received. Part 2. Revival of a Forgotten Hero Rebirth of Spirit Baptism for the 21st Century. This essay will explore the significance of spirit baptism as a cornerstone in early Pentecostal history and look at how its emphasis has since declined in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. Based on Carrie Judd Montgomery's own spirit baptism experience, I will present significant aspects or approaches to spirit baptism that need to be recovered, the potential effects of that readjustment, and look at how spirit baptism can be translated into the 21st century. Rather than entering into theological debates surrounding subsequence, the gift of tongues as initial evidence, the purpose behind spirit baptism, the different perspectives behind Luke, Paul, or John's interpretation of spirit baptism, and other controversies, my methodological approach throughout this paper is purely historical. I am not attempting to look at theological themes surrounding spirit baptism as much as I am mainly taking a snapshot of history and observing the effects and significance that this experience played and can play today. Let me freely state that I grew up in the Vineyard Movement led by John Wimber, who was alive from 1934 to 1997, where he did share his thoughts on the baptism of the Holy Spirit from time to time. Because I may have been too young when he was leading the church, I have trouble remembering outside of recordings and books the degree to which he spoke on spirit baptism. And while history shows that Wimber did speak in relation to the subject, after his death and throughout my adult life, I don't recall hearing the phrase spirit baptism much, if at all, from those who came after him. While I do remember there was plenty of prayer for being filled with the Holy Spirit, and even specific and concentrated prayer times for people to receive the gift of tongues, the terminology used at the Azusa Street Revival was somewhat absent from what I can remember from my own spiritual formation. My admitted bias here is that I am seeking to see if there might be something from early Pentecostal experience that needs to be recovered and reintroduced or reintegrated into more broad Pentecostal, charismatic, and evangelical circles. Because spirit baptism can be interpreted in many different ways, for the basis of this article it will take on a similar definition to that which some early Pentecostal pioneers gave it of a distinct experience coming after conversion, usually followed with the gift of tongues, although many early Pentecostals believed in initial evidence. Spirit Baptism, Once a Cornerstone In 1906, G.A. Cook stated in an Azusa Street Journal called The Apostolic Faith that to endeavor to help those who are sending in letters of inquiry to the Apostolic Faith office, asking how they may receive the Holy Ghost, The writer will state a little of his personal experience in obtaining this pearl of great price, the baptism with the Holy Ghost. In early American Pentecostalism, spirit baptism was exactly that, the pearl of great price. A leading global Pentecostalism historian, Alan Anderson, recalls that in relation to Pentecostal fires spreading in the early 1900s, there was an emphasis of mission flowing from the baptism of the spirit. The hype surrounding a deeper hunger for and awaiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit played a significant role in global revivals. Most scholars would agree that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a major thrust in mission in early Pentecostal history. In reflecting on today's world, I wonder when the last time in a Pentecostal or charismatic circle there has been a sermon about being baptized in the Holy Spirit or an altar call for that to happen. When was the last time any of us attended a service or heard an altar call for those who wanted to receive their personal Pentecost? And regardless of my own stance in relation to the gift of tongues as initial evidence or not, where are tongues today? They were everywhere at the Azusa Street Revival. A study done in 2006, which included 10 nations, shows that 49% of Pentecostals and 32% of Charismatics surveyed say that they never speak in tongues. For those Pentecostals who still stand strong in believing that tongues are the only sign of initial evidence for true spirit baptism, does that mean for them that almost half of Pentecostals surveyed have yet to receive their spirit baptism? And if baptism in the Holy Spirit was essential to a worldwide revival, why is that something that many American Pentecostal and charismatic churches do not put as much emphasis on today? If many people believe that the Azusa Street Revival was a critical launching pad for the Pentecostal movement in America, which is still affecting thousands even to this day, I find it interesting that many are failing to integrate it into their own theological practice. I agree with theologian Frank Machia when he says that he has thus come to wonder if the relative neglect of the doctrine of spirit baptism among theologians might not need to be reconsidered. It appears that what was once a significant part of a breakthrough generation has now faded in many Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. Pentecostal theologian Stanley M. Horton notices that at Nyack College in New York, after a revival broke out there in the early 1900s and people decided that tongues was not initial evidence, the people there stopped praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say that he hopes that this will not happen in America as a whole in the present century. If it does, missionaries from other parts of the world will be coming here to spread the truth and call for a new Pentecostal revival. This is just one account where theological differences in relation to spirit baptism may have caused decline in it being emphasized further. Additionally, in relation to the Azusa Street revival, other possible reasons for decline may have been division from within, a lack of love at times, and disillusionment in relation to the gift of tongues. One must wonder what things in relation to spirit baptism might be missing since its emphasis has been toned down. Yes, more training, equipping, and discipling is needed to channel these spontaneous moves of the Holy Spirit, but at Pentecostals and charismatics possibly because of overemphasis or past mistakes, lost their formative vision to seek Pentecost today. And if that is the case, what might they be missing out on? Or does it look like something different now that we are in the twenty first century? Even third waivers and others influenced by the Pentecostal movement might do well to rethink the importance of spirit baptism to see if there are any places today where it has been left out to the detriment and less effectiveness of the churchgoer or the minister. It might be important to ask if being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a prerequisite for successful ministry and anointing, for cleansing and empowerment. Alternatively, if one is already successful in ministry, will this baptism add anything to them or their ministry or not? A look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the life of Carrie Judd Montgomery will be helpful in finding some possible answers. Carrie Judd Montgomery's Spirit Baptism Experience as a Model The most influential woman in the divine healing movement in America, Carrie Judd Montgomery, had already experienced the Spirit in a profound way previous to her own Spirit Baptism experience. As a young woman, she experienced a miraculous healing which empowered her for lifelong ministry. Before the heightened Holy Spirit stirrings in the early 1900s, she originally thought that her first healing experience with the Holy Spirit on February 26, 1879, was her spirit baptism. From that point on in her life, she had a very influential and forerunning healing ministry. Carrie was in her late 40s when the turn of the century came with the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in all its glory, making headlines. Even though she struggled and walked cautiously toward the things that were happening at the beginnings of American Pentecostalism, she searched out this Pentecostal baptism for herself. Even with her profound ministry, she admitted that she grew still more thirsty for the rivers of living water. She said that she knew she had tiny streams, but not rivers. She proceeded to prayerfully seek God for the spirit baptism experience that was popular at the turn of the century. She was also encouraged by her friend Lucy Simmons, who had already experienced her own spirit baptism. It was with that same friend on Monday, June 29, 1908, that Carrie, at 50 years old, prayed for and received her true, in quotes, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Immediately following this overwhelming experience with the Spirit, Carrie spoke in tongues for nearly two hours. Less than two months after the event, she recorded her account. She said, For some time I have been thirsting for the fullness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. At the time of my miraculous healing, when a young girl, I was first made conscious of the Holy Spirit's work in revealing Jesus in and to me. At this time, a power to testify came into my soul, and the Word of God was wonderfully open to me, so that He has greatly blessed my ministry in the Word since that time. This experience I have always referred to as the baptism of the Holy Ghost until a few months ago when I began to watch what God was doing and pouring out his Pentecostal fullness upon some of his little ones. At first I was perplexed. I knew my experience above referred to was most real and lasting in its effects. How could I cast it away? Then I came to understand that I was not to depreciate his precious work in the past, but to follow on to receive the fullness of the same Spirit. Did Carrie get baptized twice in the Holy Spirit? Was her first healing experience just a filling of the Spirit? Was the second experience a deeper expression and maybe even a renewal of her first experience, but with a different outcome? Even though she had already experienced the Holy Spirit's presence in her earlier healing encounter, she felt that there was still something more. Referring to the earlier quote, she experienced tiny streams, but not yet rivers. When some of her friends received their Pentecost experience and she noticed the transformations that took place in their lives, she began to hunger for something she never realized existed before. Let's look at the mile run to get a better idea of her situation. Before 1954, nobody really thought that the mile run record could be broken in less than four minutes. No one even tried because that is where the bar had always been raised. It wasn't until Roger Bannister from England broke the record on May 16, 1954, that people began to realize that it was even possible. He ran the mile in 3 minutes and 59.4 seconds. Less than two months later, John Landy from Australia broke Bannister's record for the mile run in 3 minutes and 57.9 seconds. Even today, sports experts regard Bannister's achievement as one of the greatest athletic successes of all time. He broke a barrier that people didn't even think to break before. No one thought it was possible. It seems in the revivals of the early 20th century, especially in the Azusa Street Revival, that the Holy Spirit broke down barriers, even racial ones, to bring in a new outpouring of the Spirit and presence of God that not many had been accustomed to before. While there were stories of spirit baptisms with speaking in tongues scattered throughout history, Carrie most likely did not come across anyone who had received the baptism of the Spirit with the gift of tongues until the few years before her own spirit baptism experience. When Carrie saw deeper expressions of the Holy Spirit for the first time, she was awakened in her spirit to hunger for something she never realized was possible before that time. Simmons was one of the first people whom Carrie observed firsthand who broke the figurative four-minute mile record, or in reality, had her spirit baptism experience. Carrie admitted that she was at first somewhat skeptical of the Pentecostal fullness, but after seeking the positive effects it had on her friend, Carrie was struck to the core enough to embrace the experience for herself. If Carrie, who was already thriving in her ministry, previously believed that she had already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, one must wonder what greater effect her second baptism in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues following had on her life and ministry. After the second spirit baptism, Carrie claimed to have experienced a greater increase of joy, love, power for service, teachableness, love for the word of God and fellowship in prayer and praise. She described in a sermon a few years after that her fuller baptism experience resulted in freedom of the mind from all care which she had previously yet to settle. She also described her life following her spirit baptism as one where she mounted up with wings and gained physical strength in her body. Her baptism of the Holy Spirit also affected her ministry. Shortly after her experience and her triumphs of faith, she became an advocate for spirit baptism while continuing to maintain a balanced view that love was the best result of spirit baptism. Additionally, instead of just collecting money for foreign missions, she went on an international ministry trip. It was during the trip that she was first used as a bridge between evangelicals and Pentecostals to introduce this new experience and bring some clarity and understanding to missionaries on the field. While it is highly probable that Carrie would still have been effective in ministry if she continued in her present state without her spirit baptism, she claimed that the experience added new dimensions to her ministry. So if Carrie Judd Montgomery, an already successful and effective leader in the divine healing movement, and she being only one of many in a very similar situation, if she saw significance in this experience, then what does that say for successful ministers who have hesitated to explore spirit baptism? What about Christians who believe this spirit baptism experience is not for them because it's too Pentecostal? Are they missing out on anything? Carrie would most likely say yes to that question. While from her example, spirit baptism might not transform one's whole ministry, Carrie did claim that it enhanced her ministry in new ways and added a depth to her spirituality. It also empowered her for mission in a new way. Whether it be spirit baptism or a new move of God, Carrie's approach provides a great example for people from charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical, and even other traditions to follow. She wanted to be open to all that the Spirit had to offer, even if it was not what she was used to. She believed that just because some people were fanatics in relation to this experience, this did not mean it was not from God, or that it did not have value. She approached spirit baptism with a cautious view, making sure not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Present-day Christians can follow her path to do the same thing today in regards to approaching new moves of the Spirit. The next time a strange phenomenon in relation to the work of the Spirit breaks out, Hopefully, people will be encouraged through Carrie's example not to miss out on all that the Spirit might have for them, just because it comes in a strange-looking package. Nestled in with all that dirty bathwater, there might just be a precious baby who is waiting to be seen. And regardless of how successful someone is in ministry, by learning from some early Pentecostals, specifically Carrie Judd Montgomery, there's a flooding and overwhelming experience of the Holy Spirit available to all who want to take hold of it spirit baptisms into the 21st century. We have briefly looked at the historical importance that spirit baptism played in the Pentecostal revivals of the early 1900s, noticed how its emphasis declined through the years, and examined the significance of Carrie Judd Montgomery's spirit baptism experience. It has been shown that spirit baptism was a focus, a cornerstone, an experience at the heart of the worldwide revival. Now we will move on to discover the significance of the Pentecostal spirit baptism for the 21st century and explore what it might look like when this theme is rediscovered inside and even outside of Pentecostal circles today. Spirit baptism terminology in Pentecostal traditions is generally connected to one distinct experience. But I wonder what would happen if the metaphor and imagery linked to spirit baptism was adapted to more than just that initial experience. If the motivation and terminology surrounding the theme got applied after the initial experience as well. Once someone has received their distinct Pentecostal experience, it might be easy to settle, check that off the list, and then simply ask for more fillings of the Spirit after that. I'm not saying that Spirit baptism experiences are invalid in any way. I am also not saying that we should seek multiple Spirit baptisms per se. But I am agreeing with T.L. Cross when he says that if the Pentecostal reality is for everyone, then our terminology about what it is and how it is received must undergo theological reflection of a nature much more careful than it has in the past. What if the Pentecostal spirit baptism language was transformed and integrated into daily devotions? What if Pentecostals and others made, Lord, baptize me afresh in your spirit today, a regular prayer, even after their initial experience? What if that longing found at the heart of spirit baptism became a normal part of Pentecostal, charismatic, and even evangelical practice and language? Looking at a pattern in history of God's work through the Pentecostal spirit baptism, specifically in Carrie's life, I noticed that this theme could be explored more in churches that have hesitated in the past to receive this. Not to exclude those who haven't experienced this Pentecostal spirit baptism and say that they are lesser, but to create space to invite those who have yet to discover it to do so. There might just be even more that the Spirit wants to pour out in us if we just ask. John Wimber echoed what was at the heart of Carrie's approach to spirit baptism. In one of his talks when referring to spirit baptism, he encouraged the people in his church to explore all the rooms in God's house. Metaphorically speaking, he said that many Christians are saved in the bathroom and have spent their whole lives there without exploring the other rooms in God's house. Spirit baptism might simply be one room, salvation another, healing a different room, and so on. He believed that there were many people who, because of ignorance and or fear, did not realize all that was available to them in the house of God. He challenged them by saying, Don't spend your whole life in the bathroom. Enter into all that God has for you. Spirit baptism might just be one of the rooms in God's house that might need further exploration. The interesting thing is many other traditions have at one time adopted this early pentecostal theme and integrated it into their practices in years past, but have currently forgotten spirit baptism today. There's a need to go back to one's roots and our influences to find what was once precious and recover it. Broadly speaking for evangelical Christians outside the pentecostal tradition, Rather than throwing spirit baptism out or toning it down out of fear of overemphasizing one experience, what if in addition to the multiple fillings of the spirit that regularly get stressed, an honest look at the cornerstone of the Pentecostal revival is taken seriously once again? It is clear that there is something significant that took place in the early Pentecostal revivals in the 1900s that can be reintegrated into various other traditions today for possible similar effects. Whether there is an agreed-upon definition for spirit baptism or not, whether it is accompanied always with the gift of tongues or not, at the heart of the early Pentecostal spirit baptism was a desire to be completely overwhelmed, submerged, flooded, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Many people wanting that at the same time resulted in, or was the result of, the Spirit stirring up a revival. What if the whole theme and ethos behind Spirit baptism, that draw to be completely flooded in the Spirit, what if that imagery replaced or took a more central role in our hunger for the Spirit? Regardless of whether we have already had an intense experience with the Holy Spirit or if we already speak in tongues, what if we prayed more regularly for God to overflow and submerge us or to even destroy or ruin us in His Spirit? Rather than desire to receive a touch of the Holy Spirit or to be filled with a little of the Spirit, why not pray to be overwhelmed, overshadowed as Mary was in Luke one thirty-five, flooded, baptized again and again in the Spirit so much that one is swimming in the Spirit? Why not move beyond asking for tiny streams and instead ask for rivers of living water to overwhelm us? Lives that are continually submersed in the Spirit are empowered to face the challenges society throws, and they can also liberate others through their overflow. How many times do we or people we know merely ask for drops in our buckets and receive only that when if we were to hunger for rivers of living water, we would be flooded with the Spirit in that way? If I'm to make any difference in this world, even after my initial spirit baptism experience, I still need more than just a touch from the spirit or continual fillings. I want my desire to be to swim in the rivers of living water, not just in one great experience or encounter, but on a regular basis. Think of what transformation might result when the desire found in early Pentecostal prayer circles, marked by an intense hunger to be overwhelmed, to be baptized in the Spirit, becomes a renewed prayer for Christians of different traditions today. I close with the end of a talk that Carrie Judd Montgomery gave over 100 years ago in relation to her healing and spirit baptism experience entitled Life on Wings, The Possibilities of Pentecost. Now, who is going to trust God for the winged life? You can crawl instead if you wish. God will even bless you if you crawl. He will do the best he can for you. But oh, how much better to avail ourselves of our wonderful privileges in Christ and to mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Oh, beloved friends, there's a life on wings, and I feel the streams of his life fill me and permeate my mortal frame from my head to my feet until no words are adequate to describe it. I can only make a few bungling attempts to tell you what it is like and ask the Lord to reveal to you the rest. May he reveal to you your inheritance in Christ Jesus so that you will press on and get all that he has for you. I also pray that a hunger for more of the Spirit would increase inside of us, that our arms and hearts would be wide open to receive all that He has. May the Lord seal what has been highlighted to you through these words, and may they inspire in you an increase in all-consuming hunger to be flooded by the Spirit again and again. God, we don't want mere drops, but send your rain, send your floods of living water to drench us again, we pray. Amen, and let it be so.